The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the promise that you care for and keep your church, us. And so we pray in line with that promise about this morning and ask you to build us up, to strengthen our resolve, to deepen our roots, to keep us, to carry us all the way home. Lord, some parts of the passage before us this morning are difficult. Will you help us to sort it through with clear minds and careful words and careful hearts? Will you teach and build us up and do us good? Thank you, Lord. We trust you to do that now with us. Amen. One of the subtle but most powerful arguments for the truth of the biblical Christian faith is how it describes life in this world realistically and accurately with all of its problems, all of the yuck, and then provides a solution to it all that is simultaneously very challenging but deeply appealing. What I mean is that often a careful reader can hold up the Bible next to life and can look around and read and can say, that is this. That is us. This book has it. it it's got me in it. It's got, it's got this world. It's got the, all the brokenness in it. It's there. And you say the solution is what? Ooh. I don't know about that. That's hard. I don't know if I agree with that. But if it would be, if it could be, that would be something. Hmm. The Bible does that all the time with, with loads of issues in life. It, it, it holds up what's real and holds up a solution that's hard. And we see the same thing going on this morning with the issue of suffering and joy. We human beings were made for joy. We are all after it. We constantly pursue it. And we very often find it elusive, particularly in the face of all the difficult trials and hardships that this world brings us. We spend a lot of energy trying to eliminate or avoid or manage the difficult stuff in life. It keeps coming at us, and we try to, try to hold it at bay, hoping that at the end we have just enough time, money, health, energy, space left over to enjoy ourselves just a little bit. But that proves challenging, frustrating, because inevitably we find this is a perishable place and it is defiled by sin and it all falls apart, including we ourselves. And so we either have to deny the broken reality, just kind of like put our fingers in our ears and pretend nothing's broken, nothing's bad. We stop reading the paper, we stop listening to people, and we just kind of carry along happily. Or we move the goalposts and redefine joy, such that it's something light and trivial. It's, it's a chuckle at a sitcom, 22 minutes of mindlessness. 
to make us happy. And then along comes the Bible, and it affirms our longing for joy in this broken place is right. It affirms that, and then it fuels it, actually. It, it says, yes, pursue joy. Joy is right. And it tells us, in fact, that our passage today is going to use the word exceedingly rejoicing. Twice. We should be exceedingly rejoicing. But yeah, that's, what, that's right. It, it pushes us towards that with the hardships that it acknowledges simultaneously in this passage. With them, not instead of them or after them. We exceedingly rejoice, the passage is going to say, exceedingly rejoice when you have cancer. Not just after it's healed. Exceedingly rejoice as you lose your job, not just after you get a new and better one. When persecuted as an outcast because of Jesus, not just when loved as an insider. To the Christian alone, this is the blessed reality that in the middle of all the suffering, in the middle of all the hardship, exceeding joy is not just desirable, it's right. It's possible for the Christian alone. And I say that not because there's like some sort of a prejudice built in the Bible that God won't give that kind of joy to non-Christians. I say that because what makes for exceeding joy in the middle of all the hardships, what makes that possible is part and parcel to what Christian faith is. You can't get it anywhere else. It's what the Christian faith is all about. Something that makes for exceeding joy in the midst of this world, broken as it is. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning in the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. So I'm going to read beginning of verse 3, which we looked at last week, down through verse 9, though our focus for this morning is going to be on 6 through 9, from which I'll draw two observations. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. First Peter 1. I'm going to make two observations. Here's the first. 
Even while suffering, Christians rejoice because of what we believe is coming. Even while suffering here and now, Christians rejoice because of what we believe is coming. Verse 6 begins with the main idea, the first main idea. He's saying, in this you rejoice. That's the main point. And all that follows beneath it in the next two verses is, is supportive of that. In this, that is, in what we saw last week, verses 3, 4, and 5. Verse 5, we saw the Bible can freely talk about salvation as something that is one time in the past. You have been saved. And it's an ongoing, present tense reality. You are being saved. And then it can be also be a future sense. You will be saved one day at the end. And that third sense of salvation is what was in verse 5 last week. There is a salvation coming that's ready to be revealed almost here, just about. And God in power is guarding you, Christian, making sure that you will get there to that salvation and, and to the glorious inheritance, the living hope that is yours kept in heaven for you. He's guarding that there and guarding you for that day. And that is certainly going to come. Sure. And so, in this you rejoice. Right now. In a continual, ongoing manner. You rejoice exceedingly, in fact, the verse says. That's the word used right there. It's a souped-up word that's regarding the feeling of joy, the attitude of heart delight within, that we're all after, that we want. You, Christian, as, as you kind of get your mind around that living hope, the, the glorious inheritance, we talked about all this last week, and when you realize all that is, that there is going to be a people in a place with you there and all of that fixed, not broken anymore, and all of that centered around God himself present with a people in a place. You've got to get your mind and your heart around all that that we talked about last week. And certainly, as verse 3 implied, praise to God should rise up out of this. But also, in this we rejoice. That's coming to us. But Peter then has a whole lot more to say. If you just kind of look at the balance of the words here, that's the main point. But then he's got a whole lot more to say in the next couple of verses here because that exceeding joy has a context to reckon with, one of sorrow. Everywhere in life, sorrow. So what do we make of that? Well, we have to keep reading and see. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. There is a lot there. That, that sentence has a lot. So we're going to have to kind of walk through it slowly and, and look at it piece by piece, kind of unpack it carefully here. And as we do, I think what we're going to find here at first is difficult. He says, now, for a little while... And what he means is something like what Paul means when he talks about how our troubles are momentary. Compared to heaven and eternity, hardship now is momentary. It is just for a little while. Everything that happens here is just for a little while right now. 
And if for a little while, if necessary, and it is necessary, that's why we're talking about this, that's what's written here, what we're about to see is the Bible's language is making clear here, if necessary. In other words, it's not arbitrary, it's not random, it's not meaningless, it's not accidental, not a surprise to God. It, there's something necessary. Now, it's not going to go on any longer than is necessary, but if necessary, in God's mind, it will be. What will be? What are we talking about? We will be grieved by various trials. That's what the original readers were facing. He's, he writes to them, you have been grieved, and we may be, we do also face this, we have been grieved, we may be grieved in the future, if necessary, grieved by various trials. All sorts of trials. Normal hardships of life, Lived here in the fallen world, disappointments in careers and heartaches in relationships and declining health and death. As well as the frustrations of a thousand little circumstances that didn't quite work out like you planned or like you hoped. The trials of being fallen humans here, the stuff that everybody faces. And then we as Christians here who are exiles in this world, we face additional trials of various sorts. Some mild and common and sometimes trials that are awful and hard. Persecutions that are terrifying. All of that, all various sorts of trials, great ones and little ones, ordinary ones and extraordinary ones, various trials of all kinds come when necessary. But notice, technically what's necessary is that we be grieved by the trials. You to read the sentence closely. It's not just that we encounter trials, but that we be grieved by them. And I think that puts a bit of a spin on things here that gets difficult. It's tough. It is not just necessary, for instance, that you lose your job. It's necessary sometimes that you lose your job in some sort of a grievous way. What I mean is, he's not saying, if you lose your job, but frankly you were kind of burned out anyway and you could use a change, and a little bit of time off is fine, and there's plenty of jobs available, and you got a lot saved up in the bank anyway, and the government's giving extra money for unemployment, so hey, this is actually nice. That's not what he's talking about. It's a trial that in some way, the loss of a job in this case, that in some way is uneasy, that unsettles you, that hurts. It is not just necessary that your loved one gets sick, but that it be life-threatening or debilitating or even life-ending. It is necessary that it grieve us. And I say that, and as I do, I think we should put our hands on our mouths and be careful. So I, I want to say that kind of like this. 
with a little bit of a wet eye. This is the part of the verse that's hard here. You've got to hang with this for a minute because this is difficult. But it's what the text says. Now, in this life, which is temporary, but it's the life we have, If necessary, it isn't always necessary, but what that implies is that sometimes in the mind and heart of God, it is necessary. We have been and will be grieved by all sorts of different trials. We'll face some trials that are just annoying but aren't really grievous, but we will be grieved when necessary sometimes in this life. And if you, you sit there for a second and begin, begin to get a little bit of a handle on what that might mean, you can feel the lump kind of forming in your throat. We instinctively ask, as you kind of feel that, like, what could possibly make such things that I am imagining necessary? What could possibly be worth the grief that I'm imagining? The answer is in verse 7. It's worth it because of what comes from it. A strengthened and purified faith. That's worth it because of what that faith gains us, brings to you. Verse 7. So that, here's the purpose, the aim of the grieving that is sometimes necessary, so that the tested genuineness of your faith it's far more valuable than gold or anything else in the world. The most valuable thing in the world you could think of is gold. And this is far more valuable than that. It's faith. Think about gold for a second. What he's getting at here is that gold perishes, but still, even though gold perishes, we still test it by fire. We still put it through the fire to find out what impurities are mixed in and then get rid of the impurities so as to purify the gold and make it even more precious, this precious metal that perishes. So if we bother to take gold and pass it through the fire so as to re refine it and end up with something more awesome, wouldn't we also do that with faith which lasts forever and gains us something far superior Wouldn't it be reasonable to do that, to pass faith through the fire? When we do so, when our faith is tested in that way, all that's dross, all that's mixed in with our faith is burned up, all that is false and empty and hollow and artificial and worldly, all that's pretend will be gone. Which means that some who claim to be Christians will be seen not to be. Grievous trials do that. The fire will sort the chaff out of the church. But it also sorts out us, who are genuine Christians, whose faith is mixed and confused and weak and fickle. It burns away the dross out of us and leaves purity behind. And now 
tested genuineness. Th think about how this has worked in your life in the past. It, it has worked like this in the past. Some trial comes along and it kicks out the stool you've been resting on and forces you to consider, without that, is Christ enough? Makes you think about it. The trial comes along and the fear rises in you and you now realize, maybe for the first time, you, you get crystal clear that you are unable to secure your own next breath, let alone that of your child. And you pray dependent the first time in a long time. You realize the transitory nature of this world with a new clarity. None of the crap that's here matters when you're in, in the ICU. You don't care what kind of car you drive. You don't care how much money you have in the bank. When you're looking at that kind of a hardship, things get clarified for us, and we realize the brevity of life and the importance of what follows. And we might, we might find perhaps that our idols get broken. Even the good things, even the good things that perhaps have gotten into a wrong place in our lives and we've lived for them and worshipped them this little bit too much, God may touch them for our good. This is serious stuff, and I say it with my hand in my mouth, careful here. We're in deep water to talk about truths of this nature. But if God finds it necessary, he may do such things as this verse clearly says. Because sometimes he knows that that kind of suffering can do an important work that nothing else can it refines something in us such that, end of verse 7, this tested genuineness may be found one day to result in praise and glory and honor when Christ comes. And notice this. It is not praise and glory and honor towards Christ. That's going to happen regardless. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess when Christ comes. It's praise and glory and honor towards Christ. You, the believer. Faith is not highly regarded here in the world, and often it seems like the wrong choice, especially when we are exiles and it carries a cost. But when Christ comes, he will praise it in you and praise you for it. Well done, good and faithful servant. And he will bestow on you a crown and give to you an inheritance that cannot perish, that is undefiled and unfading. He will deliver it to you and you to it. He kept you both. He kept you in faith. Sometimes with grievous trial. He will deliver to you this inheritance and honor you and exalt you as a son or daughter of the king and the watching world that does not believe will see it and then will be washed away. 
To stand there and receive the inheritance is precious and supremely valuable. And part of how God keeps us believing for that day is sometimes when necessary to grieve us, to purify us, to keep us from wandering. To, he sees our, our heart straying in some way or he, or he lays down the, the seeds that will keep us from straying in the future. He is God. His ways are not like ours. I cannot presume to say this is how he does it and why. Something of this passage is sobering and real, hard but good. He keeps us, keeps us believing so as to deliver us to and to us, deliver us to the inheritance and deliver the inheritance to us. He keeps us in faith. And the forward-looking heart says, that's what is coming, I believe. That's what is coming, I believe. And that that is coming is glorious. The forward-looking heart in faith, can, can look at the grief and can say, in some way God has, has thought this necessary to deliver me to that. Okay, you are the Lord. I trust you. I don't see how. I don't understand why. He is the Lord. But when you find yourself in the middle of a grievous trial, the question being raised by that event is, in what do you hope? Who do you trust? This verse encourages, exhorts us, look ahead, in this you rejoice, even while grieved. In this you rejoice, the inheritance that's coming. In this you rejoice, realizing that in some way he's working through this to bring you to that. Trust him. I look at that first couple verses there and I, I find it to be hard. I find it to be hard in the middle of trial. But I find it to be hopeful. It explains there's some purpose here and it points my eyes towards the future. I find it to be helpful and I find it to be joy-giving. And I also find it to be not quite enough if I'm honest and I actually think you should find that to be not quite enough either all I'm saying here I don't mean to be undermining all that I just said what I mean to say is that that is good and great and not quite enough And you should feel that because there are two more verses that followed that say you need something else, actually. The second observation. The Christian's supreme joy is found in the relationship we have with Jesus now. 
The Christian's supreme joy is found in the relationship we have with Jesus now. Verse 8 launches off from verse 7's mention of the appearing of Jesus. He's coming. It takes that and then turns and acknowledges something that's, that's true about right now. Jesus is not and has not been seen by Christians. But still, we have a relationship with him anyway. Though you have not seen him, not ever, not in the past, you have not seen him, still, you love him. And Peter can say this about all these Christians in this great big area, all this, this area of much of modern-day Turkey that he's never met. He knows that they love the Lord because he knows their new creations in Christ and their loves have been changed. They have, they have a different take on Jesus now, this Jesus of the Bible. There is a love in them. But he wants to say a little bit more, and he goes on with some more detail. Though you have not seen him in the past, and though you still don't see him day by day, but still you believe in him. Which carefully is not about the moment in the past when you believed in Jesus and became a Christian. The context here he's talking about you don't see him day by day, but you believe in him day by day. And the grammar reinforces that. He's talking about a continual believing. A believing in Jesus day by day. And look what comes of that. And you rejoice exceedingly. Same word we saw up in verse 6. Here it is again. But with more added on top, rejoice exceedingly with a joy that is inexpressible. That's unspeakable, beyond words, and full of glory. This is the exceeding joy, just like up in verse 6, but now it's multiplied abundantly in a way that's, that's almost impossible to describe with words, a joy that is surpassing with an object that suits this kind of, of great joy. So notice, the first point was, here now we find joy as we look to what's coming. And this now says, that's not quite enough. You should look to what's present who is present. So we're no longer talking about set your eyes on what is about to be, what will be, and instead we're saying now with this exceeding joy, actually an exceeding joy that's multiplied, a, a joy that is almost hard to describe with words and that is full of glory, that kind of joy comes with the relationship you have with Jesus right now, here. Not looking ahead, present. This is a joy in Jesus that is right now, that is derived from the direct, present experience of the enjoyable one. You believe in him continually right now, and so you love him and rejoice in him right now, obtaining the outcome of your faith right now. The salvation of your soul now. We talked about salvation, remember, it can be past, it can be present, it can be future, and we used to be talking about the future that's coming. Not anymore, now we're talking about the present. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, obtaining it right now. The salvation 
of your soul now. The grammar is really clear. That's what he's talking about. Not past, not future, present. The goal, the aim of our faith is to be saved, to be fixed from all of the various brokenness that that sin brings us. The penalty of sin and its power, its hold on us. And something happens to the Christian now. We are saved now as we are brought into the place of believing in Jesus and rejoicing in him exceedingly, deeply, in a glorified way that is in a way that can't be impinged upon, lost, broken, isn't fragile, isn't passing away. It's the joy of heaven come to earth, experienced by you right now as you relate to Jesus right now. Jesus is the dearest friend you have ever had. He knows you. He cares. He cared to know you. In fact, he made you. Through him were all things that ever were created, created. You included, and he understands your frame, your strengths and your weaknesses, your tendencies and your habits. All the unique ways that the world feeds you, grabs you and plucks you and undermines you. He gets you. He knows you. He sees your sin patterns and your bents better than you do. He feels your fears and your temptations. He felt them himself once. Deeper, harder than you ever will. And so he sees them as real and dangerous to you. Like the best of friends, he wants the you that you were made to be holy and righteous and strong, and good, and kind, and wise. Truly and beautifully a human in the image of God. He wants that you to win out, to shine forth. And he's committed to standing by you in every moment, in every single moment of this crazy life. His loyal love for you knows no limits of time or space. There is no end to his patience with you. There is no bottom to the well of his forgiving mercy. He is radically for you. He gave his life to save you and he lives again with you and in you to keep on saving you all the way to the last day when he saves you to home. And he relates all of this to you in a way that you can perceive. His spirit lives in you and you then relate personally. You relate in heart and in mind. You are relating to, you are listening to, you're being taught and and corrected by, loved and encouraged and comforted by, impacted and changed by a relationship with the person 
Jesus. Is it any wonder that we who believe this, who know this, love him and rejoice in him? He is good and glorious and sweet and satisfying. He's kind and fascinating and beautiful and mighty and your best friend. He loves you and he loves you in a way that leaves you feeling loved wide and long and high and deep feeling that believing that we rejoice. This is the great and marvelous reality of the Christian faith. We rejoice in Jesus. There are certainly immutable, immutable facts that this faith stands on. The cross and the empty tomb, it's a fact. And there is a body of critical doctrine that we we must hold up, we must teach, we must believe. But, but after that, because of that really, because of those facts and because of that doctrine, we in the end are people who by God's sovereign grace believe in Jesus and have a relationship with him. And he with us of love and deep joy. Don't you? Don't you? See, this is a really interesting part of this sermon. Because I, I don't know, but it is certainly possible that some large portion of us were kind of saying, like over the last three, four, five minutes, oh, yeah. And you don't know what I'm talking about. Not ever. Not ever. You've never experienced what I'm talking about. You know a lot of the truths, but enjoying Jesus, relating to him as my friend, communing with him, I... I guess that's true, but you don't know what I'm talking about. And if that's you, you should pause for a second and ask yourself, am I a Christian? Because this is a distinguishing mark of a genuine Christian. You love him and rejoice with an exceeding joy. All Christians do. We are new creations in Christ. We are tuned into something different. And if you have never felt, you have no idea what I'm talking about, you should ask yourself, am I a Christian? But as you do, carefully, don't get confused between what I 
just technically said several times was you've never felt that. You don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Don't get confused with never felt that and don't always feel it in the fullest. Those are not the same thing. Never felt that. You should ask yourself, am I a Christian? Don't always feel that in the fullest. You should say, help. Because we're all there. Me included. We're all, we, we, we all should be in the place of saying, oh, I, Lord, I hear that, I see that, I, I walk through that, that couple of paragraphs there as, as I'm saying them, or as I hear the preacher saying them, and, and I'm walking through that, I'm saying, like, part of me is yawning, and part of me feels bad about yawning, and part of me says, like, oh, I used to know that back in college, and part of me says, like, ah, that would be so good if... You have a relationship with him and he with us, one of love and deep joy, don't you? Ah, yeah, but I want more of that. I have had that. I know what you're talking about, but I want more of that. I don't constantly experience it. We all fall short of that while we are still here in the flesh. And the verse tells us how to get more of it. Believing, we rejoice. You see that connection? Believing in him, we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Believing, we rejoice. You don't pursue joy directly. You pursue faith. You attend to believing. Or maybe I could say, God helps us attend to our faith. God knows our faith is precious and most valuable not only because it secures for us an inheritance that is coming, but because it secures for us right now. The deepest, most beautiful friendship relationship you've ever known with the best friend you'll ever find. But frankly, most of us don't spend much time attending to our faith. We don't spend a lot of time reflecting on what is true and taking our thoughts captive and saying to ourselves, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. We usually just drift along with the wind and let the world tell us and let our feelings tell us what's true. We have to grab hold of and believe. We don't usually do much work at that. Kindly, God sometimes helps us. Sometimes when necessary in hard ways. But brothers and sisters, all of us day by day, should, I think you should see before you here, there is something awesome laid out here. An exceeding joy that is about what's coming, and when I see it and believe it, I rejoice. And an, an awesome, a double awesome, a hard to express in words reality that I can enjoy Jesus right now if and as I trust him, if and as I set my mind on what is true. And I don't know of any better passage in the Bible than these verses right here in 1 Peter 1. It is well worn in my personal Bible because I spend a lot of time here. These are awesome verses. Just walk through this to spend time thinking about I'm chosen in Christ and sealed by his blood. 
He has secured for me an inheritance and is going to come and get me. And until he comes and gets me, he abides with me now to watch my ways, to shepherd me through this life. What a Savior. What a Savior. And if I will attend to that, if you will attend to that, and set your minds on not just truths, but on the person of Jesus, And trust him. Simply trust him. Believing, you rejoice. There's an order there that we have to notice. We work in a certain way. There is something really good here. Set your minds on it. Set your minds on him. And pray, pray, pray. That God would press into you who Jesus is for you and how much Jesus loves you. Wide, long, high, and deep. Nobody in the world loves you. Not by comparison to Jesus. Nothing in the world cares a rip about you. Not by comparison to Jesus. And he gave himself for you and continues to give himself for you. To give you, in the midst of all that is broken here, to give you surpassing joy. And then one day to deliver you to home. He is good. He is great. He's yours. Never leaving you, not forsaking you, not, 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 not ever. Believing this, you love him and rejoice in him with unspeakable, unshakable joy. So let me pray for us for faith. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.